His Father then is the vine dresser. He's the one who carefully, compassionately, wisely, tenderly, with skill beyond measure, prunes the branches. He comes along and takes away those branches that are not producing fruit and produces those that are producing fruit so that they will be more spiritually fruitful. So if you are in Christ by grace through faith in Him, you are connected to the vine, you are producing fruit. The assurance here is that Christ is the life-giving source. You need not produce this on your own. Combined with the assurance that His Father is carefully tending to you, carefully pruning you, carefully cutting you at just the right times, in just the right places, for just the right purposes, so that you will be more fruitful. So I posited to you a spiritual law during those two sermons that if indeed you are in Christ, the longer you are in Christ, the more fruitful you will be in Christ. Because you will know more of the pruning work of the Father. His tender care for you will produce more fruit out of you. But it doesn't stop there. Those are glorious assurances enough. But Jesus went on in that text to give us four results of that abiding in Christ. Laid down for us. If we are abiding in Him, these will be the spiritual blessings that we'll know. Namely, we will be heard by the Father when we pray. Abiding in Christ and having His words abide in us will pray according to His will and He will hear and answer us according to His will and we will have that for which we ask. More than that, we'll be fruitful as we abide in Christ. We'll produce good works to the glory of the Son. More than that, the third blessing, spiritually speaking, of abiding in Christ is that we will be loved. We will know the love of God for us and we will be more loved by God as we abide in Christ. And then lastly, we'll know the fullness of joy if we abide in Christ. This is the pathway to the super abundance of joy offered to the Christian in Christ. It is to abide in Christ. As I was preparing for those sermons for you in November, I was in my personal reading in the book of Colossians, reading through one chapter a day along with some other readings. And as I was contemplating the truths of John 15, those were sloshing around in my mind and my heart. I was considering all things relating to abiding in Christ. I was reading this glorious book, the book of Colossians. And I came to Colossians 2 in particular and was struck with the connection to John 15. I've told you often that the Gospels lay out for us the, the person, the work, the nature, the words of Christ. They, they give us the account of the real life reality of Jesus. But as the New Testament progresses, so does its revelation. And so this, this Jesus of the Gospels is, is seen in His work to build the church in the book of Acts. His Spirit descends upon His people and He uh, blows up the message worldwide, not just from Jerusalem, but all across the world, and builds the church in Jew and Gentile alike. And then the epistles, the Romans to Revelation section of the New Testament, are the apostles writing to that fledgling church, instructing them with the words of Jesus. So all the apostles are doing is, is taking the truth that Jesus laid down in the Gospels, and they're explaining and expounding it all the more for the church in their present context of, of growth in the first century. And 
through all the way to our time and our day and our church. So what Jesus explained and commanded in John 15 is here further explained. Paul is simply taking the John 15 idea of abiding in Christ and and giving us more through the Spirit, revealing more to us of what it means to abide in Christ. Colossians, I'm sure you know this, but let me remind you of the book of Colossians. It's a short letter. Paul had not even met these folks that he's writing to, nor the church of Laodicea that they were supposed to pass the letter on to. His understudy, Epaphras, had gone out from Ephesus, where Paul was ministering for about three years, and he had sent him out to other places, and one of those was to Colossae. And the Lord had done a great work through Epaphras, and by the power of the gospel, to plant a fruitful and faithful church in Colossae and in Laodicea. And as the church developed and grew, so too did the challenges and the threats and the dangers. And so Paul now is writing from prison in Rome. It's uh, probably the imprisonment that is at the end of his shipwreck journey from Jerusalem. So he'll get out of jail one more time, and then he'll get put back in jail, and after that he will die. He'll be martyred for the faith. He's in prison in Rome, and he is hearing that there are challenges afoot to the churches in this region. And so, empowered by the Spirit and moved along by the Spirit, he pens them a letter inspired by the Spirit to address those concerns. And the dangers that threaten them are the dangers of human philosophy and self-made religion. And there is nothing new under the sun. This is our current threat to our church. But what does Paul do? What does he lay before them to address the threat? To address the present and clear enemy within and outside the church? Does he expose the false teaching? Does he go into into laborious detail about human philosophy and self-made religion and why it's wrong and where it missteps and how it should not be followed? Well, if you have read Colossians lately, you know he does not do that. Rather, he says precious little about what it is that's actually being taught by false teachers. His MO is to focus on Jesus Christ, to lay before the church the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus of Nazareth. He does this in chapter 1, laying before us the supremacy of Christ over all. He's preeminent over all. In chapter 2, he, he furthers that as it relates to the false teaching, and he explains to them how the, the answer to the false teaching is the supremacy of Jesus. And then in the rest of chapter 2, on through chapters 3 and 4, he applies that to everyday life situations, like marriage and parenting and work and overseeing employees. He explains to them how the supremacy and the preeminence of Jesus relates to everyday life. How you think about what you buy at Walmart and how you drive your car and how you relate to your spouse and how you think about your singleness, all of it relates directly to the preeminence, the supremacy, and the sufficiency of Jesus. It is a book all about Christ. What a great time of year for us to consider this glorious book. The light bulb moment for me as I read through Colossians and studying for John 15 was what I just said to you that Christ is everything 
and we must remain in him. There is so much to say here. What does that mean? But abiding in Christ looks like remaining in Christ by faith. Trusting in Christ. Entrusting yourself to Christ. Being filled with the sufficiency of His grace to do the things He calls you to do. Bringing all things into submission under His clear will and clear revelation in His Word. Abiding in Christ. Colossians 2 makes this so very clear. Verse 1, it says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Pray with me, would you? Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before your word. These are words that have been given to us by your spirit through your servant, Paul. We ask that you would transform us and renew our minds as we consider these words. Father, I cannot make these your people see and know and love and worship Christ more through my preaching. So I confess to you every ounce of trust I have in any human ability to preach. I repent of that and I turn to you, Lord Jesus, that you, through your word, would capture the hearts of your people about your glory and your supremacy and your sufficiency Now, we would leave this place fundamentally altered, having seen more of you and your glory. So, Lord, would you in the minutes ahead meet with us, your people, and reveal to us more of your goodness and grace. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. These seven verses in Colossians 2 lay down for us the foundational truths of the why and the how of abiding in Christ. The rest of chapter 2 down through chapter 4 give us the practical ways to abide in Christ. That's what I was struck with as I read. I've thought of Colossians 2, 6, and 7 in relation to Christ's command of abide in me and I in you. But I'd never seen how Paul fleshes out being rooted and grounded in Christ into everyday practical realities in the rest of his letter. That's what we'll get to next week. This morning we lay the foundation that he lays in verses 1 through 7 of abiding in Christ. To help us do that, I want to ask and answer three questions. They're simply, what is the danger? What is the solution? And what is the way forward? Paul is writing a situational letter. There's a problem. It's a problem that's provoked his pen. And by his pen, he's addressing the problem. 
and giving a solution and a way forward. So what's the problem? What's the danger that they are facing and that we also are facing? Well, he says in verse 1, I have a great struggle for you and for those at Laodicea. I've not seen you face to face, he says, but I love you deeply and dearly in Christ. And what is it that's concerning him? Well, verse 4, he says, I'm concerned that you'll be led away by plausible arguments. You'll be deluded with plausible arguments. Both of those words, deluded and plausible arguments in the original, have at the core of their, their compound words, but at the core of their word is the word logos. Word. He's concerned that words will enter in. Delusional words that sound good. That, that create a system of thought that you, when you first hear it, you think, well, that could be true. I hadn't thought of it that way before. That's interesting. Maybe that is what is actually true about fill in the blank. He says there's people among you who have entered in and are using delusional words to defraud your faith and to lead you away from Christ. He comes back to that threat in verse 8. He says, make sure no one takes you captive. No one hauls you away like booty in a war. Captives and prisoners from the battlefield. Don't let anyone take you away captive with philosophy and empty deceit. You see, the danger is simply man-made, man-centered systems of thought and understanding which constantly seek entrance into the heart and the mind of the Christian to strangle the truth and to lead you away from the life giver who is Christ. This has been true from day one till day whatever we're on right now in the history of the church. This has always been the threat in the body of Christ. There's a battlefield for the mind of the believer. And it's laid out here in the letter to the church in Colossae. The enemy seeks to infiltrate and attack the body of Christ through the gateway of the mind with plausible sounding words. The enemy of your soul is a master words. He's a master of vocabulary and plausible sounding arguments. He knows how to make an argument against the truth look so good that you tend to believe it is true. He dresses up deceit and error in wonderful linens of logic. He adorns it with the most precious jewelry of well-arrayed words. Because, you know, if he just put deceit in front of you without its robes on, you would see the ugliness of its nakedness and you would turn away. You would say, how could anyone believe that? That's heresy. That's not sound doctrine. That's ridiculous. But he doesn't do that. He's smarter than that. He's more crafty than that. He wraps it all up in nice-sounding, plausible arguments. He does this on the individual level for trying to lure you away individually from Christ. He does this on the corporate level as he seeks to enter into the church corporately and, and lead us all away from Christ. In Paul's day, the danger was all kinds of religious philosophies which took the simplicity of Christ and added to them all kinds of man-dependent ways. He's going to talk about that in verses 16 to 23. We'll say more about that next week. But it's simply people adding things to the gospel, to Christ. And people love to do that. 
People love to, to have a little bit of Christ and a little bit of something else in the mixing bowl of their faith to, to bring out the, the perfection of their own recipe. In Colossae, they were calling for restrictions on food and drink and observation of special days. They were insisting, he says, on asceticism, denial of the flesh, denial of, of necessary, needful meeting of the needs of your flesh. They were calling for recounting of, of visions that they were having in which they sounded really spiritual. Paul says they're all puffed up. They're all sensuous in their minds. It's all about them and their experience. Verse 23, he calls it a self-made religion. It looks good. It's impressive. People hear it and see it. It's plausible sounding. They say things like, if you really knew Christ and really loved Christ, you would fill in the blank. If you really loved Christ, you wouldn't fill in the blank. And I'm talking extra biblical things here. There's clear statements from Scripture that relate to how the gospel changes us and transforms us. It's not wrong to proclaim those in the context of grace. This is more than that. This is an addition to the Word of Christ. But if you really love Christ, you would not do that. You wouldn't eat that meat offered to idols. If you really loved Christ, you would observe this holy day as unto the Lord because it's holy to me. It should be holy to you. Look, I can show you in the Bible where I get that from. Are you even really a Christian if you don't do fill in the blank? Well-dressed propositions flowing from man's imagination. In our day, just to give you a few examples, it's the word of faith teaching that spills out of so many preachers' mouths. And at the heart of the word of faith movement and the word of faith gospel is that they don't think that the gospel, the grace of the gospel of Christ is sufficient there's not enough there to sustain you through the trials and tribulations of life in a sin-cursed world. So, they say, you need to pray in faith, and in fact, God wants you to pray in faith and command from God how you need to have this need met, how you need to have this trial or tribulation removed. It's also the seed of faith heresy of the prosperity gospel in which they say that if you had enough faith, you would send me, the prosperity gospel preacher, a seed payment of, of your faith in financial form. And by that, you're putting God to the test. You're, you're putting Him in your debt. Your faith and your seed money put Him in your debt. Therefore, He must bless you with financial and material blessings beyond your wildest imagination. It's also the view of so much of the church in America today that the gospel of Christ is not relevant in and of itself to change and transform and attract lost sinners. The gospel is good, but the gospel needs help. Therefore, we must present the gospel in, in culturally hip ways, namely entertainment guised as worship, topic-driven talks which Scratch the itching ears of the audience with nice-sounding platitudes of little to no real consequence. Like eating spiritual marshmallows, people end up with a sick stomach. 
It's also the legalism of our judgmental religiosity, which I think many of us have in our backgrounds, in which we quickly look upon another who's professing to follow Christ and can assess them by seeing them for just a few moments, whether or not they actually are in Christ or not. That the gospel is is enough to save us, but Jesus needs a little help to sanctify us. And so we need to add to the gospel our, our part, looking the part, acting the part, and impressing others with our religious attainment. It's the belief that Scripture is as good as far as it goes. But that there's things in life and the challenges of a 21st century world that the Scripture doesn't really directly address. Therefore, it's great to have the Scripture for some things, but there's other things that that go beyond Scripture. Therefore, we need man-centered, man-driven solutions, which usually lead to another prescription lining the pockets of big pharma as they limp us along in dependence on them and their ability to heal us of our emotional struggles. You see, those plausible arguments and a thousand more are clear and present dangers in the church today as they pull us away from Christ. I've heard it over and over and over again just to give one example of many that I could Within the church at large, I heard it yesterday on my way home from studying in the office. I just turned on bot radio or whatever. I don't even know what what station was on. I couldn't tell you. A Christian station with a Christian speaker. And they were talking about the reality of depression. And he was doing an interview with a, a guy about his depression. And the explanation for the depression was fully human philosophy. Now, We can talk about things that go wrong with the brain and the human body and all that and how it relates to emotions. You're a, a singular person made up of many parts, soul and body and emotions and heart. And when one of those goes wrong, lots of other things go wrong. But the only the only problem, the only assessment of the problem given in that conversation was there's something missing in my brain, therefore I am depressed. That's just one example of many of the church just accepting the cultural narrative of human philosophy. Understandings of things rooted in how we as mankind have made sense of it. And when you start there, you have to go to, well, then how do we fix it? Paul is saying to the church in Colossae, beloved, that is a danger to you. That will lure you away from Christ. This is not to mention the dangers you face every day on an individual level. The enemy of your soul is seeking entrance at every turn into your heart and your mind with his beautifully dressed ways to view your life and shape your actions. He's seeking entrance through entertainment, through music, through movies through conversations with friends and co-workers. He's working double time to get you to be lured away from Christ. And so he lies to you, young adults, about the meaning of life. He lays before you the carrot of, of some aspect of God's gift. He says to you, if you just had the right job, could make the right amount of money, could buy the right house, could 
marry the right person and have the right amount of kids and live in the right spot, then you would know the fullness of joy in this life. Flipping for you in your mind the gift from the giver. Idolizing that which God gives instead of worshiping the one who gives. He lies to you, young ladies, about your worth and your value. That somehow it is tied to your appearance and your external beauty. And that if you really want to matter in this world, you must look like the latest Instagram fashion. He lies to you, young men, and he tells you that you can wait a little longer to work hard and make something of your life. He tempts you with passivity and constantly feeds your laziness with more opportunities to put off what you should be doing so that you can be entertained yet again. He lies to you, young parents, with plausible-sounding arguments about how you should raise your kids and about what would work, and that if you just did this, 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 and this, your kids will come out perfect. And they will give so much pride to you as they accomplish everything in your name for your glory. He tempts you with that carrot. He lies to you, young parents, about your marriage. He tries to weasel his way between you and your spouse and tempt you with the the angst and the hurt that is there just by the nature of living together with the constant fire hose of young children and all of their needs. And he tempts you to think that your spouse doesn't love you like they should, that they undervalue you, that they don't appreciate you, that maybe there's something better. He lies to you who are unmarried, tempting you to idolize marriage, to worship it as though if you had it, you would be truly living. He lies to those of you who are married and tempts you to undervalue your marriage and to look for supposedly greener pastures somewhere else. He lies to you middle-aged men and women and tells you that none of it is worth it. As the idealism of your youth gives way to the realism of your middle age. And you start to doubt, is any of this worth my time? Why keep trying? He tempts you and lures you from Christ. He tempts you who are aging with thoughts of useful, uselessness, excuse me, because you can't do all that you used to be able to do in your own home or for others. And so, is your life really worth it? Throw on that the regrets you have of all the things you haven't been good at all your life or how things didn't turn out like you wanted them to, or planned for them to, or dreamt that they would. And he has fuel to start the fire of depression, despair, worthlessness, hopelessness, and uselessness for Christ. You see, by these and a thousand other lies, you are constantly bombarded with thoughts that will delude and take captive your heart and your mind to make you ineffective spiritually stagnant and unfruitful. That is the bad news. That is the danger. That is the trap set for you. 
Praise God there's an answer. So what is the answer? That's the danger. What is the answer? You know the answer. The answer is Christ. He is the answer. If your answer starts with you, it is not a sufficient answer. Wherever your soul needs help today, needing to find purpose or hope or joy or direction or whatever it is that you need, if your answer starts with you or with someone else, it is no true answer. The answer is Christ. This is the sufficient exclusivity of Christ. Spelled out for us in verses 2 to 3. And in verse 3, Christ is metaphorically compared to an unending mine whose priceless treasures of wisdom and knowledge are, are constantly calling for us to search them out. Notice the exclusivity of Christ in verse 3 that all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found only in Him. There's no secret way into this knowledge. There's no, no spiritual or religious ceremony needed to initiate you into this knowledge. No, it's right there in Christ. Laying on the floor of the mind of Christ. And every time you go to Him, you see more of the glory of the treasures of knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is simply what you need to know about life. Wisdom is simply how you apply that knowledge to live life. It's everything you need to know about how to live in this world. And all of that is wrapped up in Christ. Now, if you're like me, you're skeptical as you read sometimes, even of the Word, sad to say, hopefully a faith-filled skepticism, but you're like, what does that mean? How is that true? Good Bible reading often is catapulted by the right question and knowing where to find the right answer. And so as you're reading along in Colossians 2, you get to verses 2 and 3, you see the exclusivity of only and all, and you're thinking, wait a second. There's knowledge in this world outside of Christ, isn't there? We don't, we don't go to the Scripture to learn how to do a science experiment in the classroom to teach our students. What does he mean, all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found only in Christ. Well, he really means all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are wrapped up and found in Christ. Now to prove that to you, I want to just run you through the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians. It's going to be a bit of a fire hose, so buckle up, here we go. In chapter 1, verse 3, he declares that Jesus is Lord. So how is it that Christ is the mind that is full of the riches of wisdom and knowledge? How is it that Christ is sufficient for wisdom and knowledge? Chapter 1, verse 3, He is Lord. That means that all things are under His authority. All things answer to Him. Every molecule in the universe is under the authority of this Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says he is the image of the invisible God, meaning that in Jesus Christ, we have God made known to us, enfleshed for us. John says in John 1, 18, you remember this, that God is exegeted to us by Jesus, the final word. 
The Word makes known the Father to us. He is God in the flesh. Also in verse 15, Paul says, Jesus is the firstborn of creation, meaning He is the preeminent one over all that has been made. He existed before all creation was brought into existence. So you're a created being living in a created world, trying to make sense of it all, trying to understand where you fit and why it matters and how you should live. And everything that has ever been made, everything that's ever existed, exists under the firstborn of creation, Jesus the Christ. Who better to turn to than the firstborn of creation, the preeminent over creation, who knows all, understands all, designed all. Verse 16, he says he is the creator of creation. Not only is he preeminent over creation, but he brought it all into existence, Hebrews 1 says, by the power of his word. He spoke it all into existence. He said, and it came into being. Friend, who better to look to for the perplexities of life as a created being in a created world than the one who brought you into existence. He says he is the ultimate purpose of creation in verse 16. He's the reason for all of this creation. All things are made through him and all things are made for him. So if you want to know the purpose of something, it begins and ends in Christ. He made it. He's designed it. He's using it for himself. If you want to understand the reason of something, the answer is in Christ. Verse 17 of chapter 1, he is before all of his creation. It means he pre-existed his creation. Logically obvious. He had to pre-exist it in order to speak it into existence. But it means more than that. He means he's preeminent over it. He's before it in the sense that it all points to him. It all answers to Him. It all finds its meaning in Him. It's all for Him. He is preeminent before it all. Verse 17, He is the sustainer of creation. Not only did He bring it into being, but He also keeps it in being. Keeps it in order. Keeps it accomplishing His purposes. Nothing flies apart into the bazillion of atoms that It is made up of because Jesus Christ, by His Word, holds it all together. Verse 18, He's the head of the church, meaning His people are especially under His authority and leadership. If you want to know, what should the church be focused on? What what should the church give her time and attention to? How should the church reach into the world with the message of the gospel? How should the church be concerned about the needs of of our culture? What should the church do to organize herself so that she's well run under the authority of her head who is Christ? And if you say, well, some book somewhere says, you have the wrong answer. Christ is the head of the church. The one who rules over His body. The one who has clearly spoken in answer to all of our questions about life in the church. Verse 18, he's the beginning, meaning he is the source and the genesis of all things. Revelation 1 tells us he is the ending of all things. He's the alpha and the omega, the A and the Z, the first and the last, the beginning and the ending. Starts with him and it ends with him. 
Verse 18, he's also the firstborn from the dead, meaning he's preeminent over death and preeminent among those who are resurrected from the dead. You see, it's only Jesus who has died under the weight of our sin and survived through resurrection to come out the other side as victorious over death. Therefore, he stands as the firstborn over death, the firstborn of death, giving to us hope that one day we will come out the other side as he has, resurrected in like form with him. Verse 19, he has a dwelling in himself, has dwelling within himself all the fullness of God. He's not partially God. He's not almost God. He's not 99.9% God. He is completely, totally, truly God. And in his flesh, God was pleased to dwell, scriptures say. Verse 20 of chapter 1, he reconciles all things to himself. Glorious truth of a future hope. All things are put in their place beneath his feet. All that is out of place and at war with him and with others is one day going to be reconciled under him, by him, and through him. And that reconciliation is especially true of those of us who know the forgiveness of our sins through the blood of his cross. Chapter 1, verse 27, he's the hope of glory which dwells within us. We can be assured of our coming day of glory because Christ is in us the hope of glory. Chapter 2, verse 2, and 4, verses 3 and 4, which we've read this morning. He is God's mystery. He is the, the accomplishment of all that God promised in the Old Testament. He is the bringing forth into fruition all that God made sure would happen in Old Testament prophecy. In 2.9, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. There's, there's not partial deity in him or a glimpse of deity or moments of God-like wisdom and knowledge. No, the the whole fullness is in Christ. 2.10, he's to be the head of all rule and authority. There's no authority or standard or, or ruler over anything that is outside of the headship and authority of Christ. 2 verse 11, he triumphs over all spiritual rulers and authorities who are waging war against him and his church. Meaning he is the ultimate victor over all things. He will not be defeated. He is the indisputable world champion in the spiritual realm. He is the true substance of the Old Testament law in 2.17. All of those stringent stipulations of Mosaic law are fulfilled by him and in him, pointing ahead to him. He brings them to their end. 3.1, he's seated at the right hand of God above. He has sat down in his place of exalted completeness. His work here is finished. He awaits the moment of his soon return. Three, three and four, our life is hidden with him. He is our life. As Jesus himself said in John 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 3.15, he's the maker and the giver and the sustainer of peace. All true peace is from Christ. 4.1, he's our master. We're his slave. He has all authority to call all of the shots. So I ask you, why should it be said that in Jesus Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge? 
simply because Christ is the preeminent creator, sustainer, and Lord of all things which he has created. Christ is before all things, and all things hold together in him. Christ is the purpose of all things. He is the beginning and the ending of all things. He is God in the flesh, with whom and in whom all the fullness of deity dwells bodily. He is the hope of glory. He is our life. He is our peace. He is God's mystery now revealed. He is the victor and the head. He is seated at the right hand of God. He is wisdom and knowledge incarnate. The question is not, why should we go to Christ as the fullness of wisdom and knowledge? The question is, why would we go anywhere else? Why wouldn't we go to Christ? You want to know why you're here? You want to know what you're supposed to do? You want to know how you're supposed to be effective in this world for your king? Then look no further than Christ. Having started with him, do not go beyond him. Do not go away from him. Go further into him. Abide in Christ. Remain in him. He is everything you could ever need or want. You are a branch. He is the vine. Branches survive no other way, but connected to the vine. So what's the way forward? It seems obvious, but verses 5 through 7 make it very clear. We must abide in Christ. We must walk in him, as verse 6 says. Before we get there, notice that he says in verse 5 that they are in good order and being firm in their faith in Christ. He's thankful for that. Those are military terms in the Greek. The the army of the Lord is in good shape in Colossae. They're they're in their right ranks. Their battle lines are drawn up. They're in the right spot. They're standing firm in Christ. They're ready for the battle. But he doesn't just end the letter after verse 5 and say, praise God, blessings to you, I'll write you later. He goes on from saying, you're firm in the faith. You're well-ordered. You're ready for the battle. Now, walk in Christ. As you have received Him, so walk in Him. They simply cannot rest on their strength. They must go on in Christ. He says to them that as they have received Christ the Lord, they are to walk in Him. Then in verse 7, He gives four participles. Those are, for your grammar nerds, those are verbal nouns. They're verbs acting as nouns to explain the main verb. The main verb in verses 6 and 7 is the command, walk in Christ. The explanation of walking in Christ is in verse 7, rooted in Him and being built up in Him and being established in the faith as you were taught, rejoicing or giving thanks abundantly, abounding in thankfulness. That's how you go forward in Christ. This is so parallel to John 15. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples in the upper room. Abide in me. Walk in Christ the same way you received Christ. That's by faith in all that he is. Notice how how Paul uses the three titles of Christ in that one verse. As you have received Christ Jesus the Lord. That is in in a phrase form, the gospel. Full of meaning and full of clarity about who it is that they are in. 
Christ is a, a clear call to all that Jesus accomplished in fulfilling Old Testament promises. The body of truth about Christ of the Old Testament now being accepted by faith that Jesus did that. Jesus is pointing them to the human nature, the human reality of this Son of God who came in human flesh and lived a human life in full obedience to the Father, a sinless substitute for us. And Lord signifies the absolute sovereignty He has over each disciple who has personally received Him and over all creation. So Paul says, as you have received Him, Christ Jesus the Lord, so now walk in Him. Don't go past Him. There's nothing bigger and better than Him. Abide in Him. Remain in Him. This is explained by that string of participles in verse 7. He's saying to you, you can continue in Christ because you have been rooted in Christ. And because you are being established in the faith and because you abound in thanksgiving in Christ. Let me be a grammar geek for a minute because it's important. These participles are different and there's a reason they're different. Rooted is a perfect passive participle. It means nothing to most of you but something to some of you. It simply means that it is describing a fixed state. Something that's happened in the past and this is now the nature of things. Rooted in Christ. He's speaking of, of something accomplished. It's passive. It's not something you did. It's something that was done to you and for you in the past with ongoing, continuous, unending, irrefutable results. You're rooted in Christ. This is simply how it is. If you're in Christ by faith, You've been born again. You have new life in Him. You are rooted into the vine. You're connected, never to be separated. The taproot of your soul goes directly down into Christ. The next participle, being built up, is a present passive participle. This is something being done now to the true believer in an ongoing, unending way. But it's also passively done. It's done to them. They're being built up. So they're rooted in Christ by grace. And now they're being built up into Christ by more of that grace. The root going down will produce results up above. This is true in nature, right? Planting the seed in good soil, nurturing it. What happens first? If you've ever done that science experiment where you can can see the transparent reality of the seed. What does it do first? It sends down its root. And then as it sends down its root and builds in nutrient and life-sustaining and life-giving water, it shoots up its plant or its tree. This is the same thing that's true for the Christian. The rooting comes before the building up. The water and the nutrients of spiritual life flow from the vine through the root into the soul and produce something obvious up above the ground. You produce fruit, to use the language of John 15. The next participle is also a present passive, established in the faith, or better, being established in the faith. It's a work done to you as you are taught established in the body of truth about Christ. And all the more as you grow up in Christ, you are more and more established in Christ. 
That last participle is an active present, a present active participle abounding in thanksgiving, meaning it's an ongoing work, but you're doing it. This is the abundant overflow of all the previous three participles. Because you're rooted in Christ, because you're being built up in Christ, because you're being established in the faith just as you were taught, now you can't help but abound in thanksgiving. This is the sure mark of maturity in the life of the believer. They're thankful. Not just here and there, but they're abounding in thankfulness. They can't help but rejoice in the goodness of God in all things, as Paul says in Philippians 4. This abundant thankfulness is like the flower that makes itself known on the fruit tree. About time for the the fruit tree to produce its fruit. The tree bursts forth in a bright display of of life and health and, and beauty. As part of the fruit-bearing process, it can't help but give praise to its maker. Flowing from the root up through the trunk into the edifice, it, it sprouts out its flowers and draws attention for all to see. Look how beautiful I am as I point to my Creator. That's what thankfulness is for you. It's the flower of your fruit tree. Declaring the goodness and the glory of the God who is at work in you, rooting you in Christ building you up in Christ, establishing you in the faith, producing things out of you, you are thankful. Brother, sister, why would you go anywhere? Why would you go anywhere else? When you struggle to find joy and hope in life, go to Christ. When you're caught in sin and can't find the way out, Go to Christ. When you know the blessings of growth and the joy of fruitfulness, go more into Christ and abound with thankfulness for all that He is and all that He has done. So beloved, just as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk rooted and being built up in Him and being established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for your clear word. Thank you for the privilege to consider it in these minutes. Help us, Lord, to walk in Christ. Thank you for the work of your grace to make us more like your son. We pray for a furtherance of that in the days to come. Thank you for the privilege now to gather around your table and remember this Christ and all of his work for us. Would you fill us with joy, with awe, with worship as we partake of these elements together. In Jesus' name, amen.